No, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I've got a, um, I have a thing that I hand out to, to all of my writers. And what it is, it's, it's kind of a guide to being edited. <laughs> um, because I quite often make reference to things in it when I'm editing people's work. So I will actually put a reference to, the, to a particular chapter and say, you know, you need to read this. Uh, but even then, it's still just a stepping stone. Eventually, uh, any writer who is determined to become a great writer will reach the stage where they are making up their own rules. Um, and and that's, that's, that's where everyone should be trying, that's, where, that's what everyone should be aspiring to. I'm J.S. Leonard and you're listening to Bleeding Ink, a podcast for fearless authors poised to change the world. This is episode 17. If this is your first nibble of Bleeding Ink, then there's plenty of great episodes prior to this. I've interviewed New York Times bestselling authors to bootstrapped entrepreneurs, all of which entrance their readers, change lives, and enable their own rewarding lifestyles. Tune in every other week on iTunes or Stitcher. To stay up to date, follow me on Twitter, at JSLAuthor, and visit bleedingink.fm. That's B-L-E-E-D-I-N-G-I-N-K dot F-M, where you can sign up for the mailing list. I've got a great show for you today, and be sure to stick around until after the episode. This is a special little announcement. So, everyone, welcome. There there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed, and bleed, and bleed. Today I interview Harry DeWolf. He's a developmental editor living in France, and has helped numerous award-winning authors. This episode is jam-packed with vitamin-infused writing advice. You'll learn what it means to be edited and how to make the most of the process. You'll learn how to boost your writing culture and how that culture will inform your own ability to lay down words. You'll learn why having a clear picture of who you are writing for should be your number one goal. And above all, you'll learn the holy grail of great writing. First... We begin with Harry's start. Again, I moved to France and I was in startups again. And I had to uh, oversee a lot of the technical writing because uh, it all had to be done bilingually. Um, but I, I mean, I graduated in theatre studies. Right. Yeah, I saw that. And, uh, and, and that, I mean, that's been enormously useful when it comes to editing and understanding fiction. So Harry studied dramatic theater just hours from where Shakespeare wrote and acted in the Golden Globe. He graduated and immediately found a technical writing job at a startup. He rode that wave until discovering his knack for editing. The first time I professionally edited a work of fiction was in 2007. Um, I'd already kind of informally done stuff. And I'd also already um, done proofing work for... Um, well, I, I have a couple of friends who were in traditional publishing. Um, and how did I... I can't remember how I ended up doing it full time. <laughs> I, um, one, of my, one of my best friends, again, this is someone I was actually... Someone I studied theatre with, um, who's a few years older than me. And he said to me, he said, look, you should... Uh, uh, and he'd actually he'd asked me to look over a few of his books, and his books are now selling really nicely. This is a guy called uh, D.P. Pryor, 
Um, and uh, and he said to me, he said, There's, there are lots of people moving into self-publishing now because you can you can actually do it without it being vanity and uh, um, and you should edit for them. And so I started doing that and that's it. That's what I've been doing ever since. Self-publishing used to be the realm of vanity publishers where authors paid to have their books published. Now the landscape couldn't look more different. Authors are free to explore new and exciting stories without relinquishing control. It's obvious that there are a lot of people who are really good writers out there who want to make the kind of who want to keep the kind of control you get when you're self-publishing and who want to be able to uh, um, get the it's getting the return on the investment, you know, because that's what you don't get in trad at the moment. Trad is traditional publishing. Authors might spend years writing a novel and garner a few percent of the profits. Self-publishing is flipped. Authors often keep over 90% of their profits. How has traditional publishing responded to this? I know a couple of people at Hachette, and Hachette are well aware that uh, in, the, um, in the paperback market, their position is really only sustainable because they basically control the paperback market in France and have a big stake in the paperback market in Germany. Um, but uh, they think that uh, the paperback is going to be completely electronic within a few years. Uh, and they think that paperbacks are going to be mostly self-published within a few years. So Hashit sees all paperbacks moving to a self-published model. And this would leave hardbacks and artisan-crafted books in the hands of traditional publishers. Now, have they been right in the past? And they, they were, in fact, the ones who, it must, must, must be three or four years ago now, who actually said that they reckoned that they had uh, completely misread the market. Um, well, because they they said to themselves, "Oh well, you know that what's going to happen with ebooks is it's all going to be mixed uh, media publishing. So it's all going to be things like textbooks, and it's all going to be um, books that are partly on the device and partly on the internet, and that contain lots of video and audio, and that are and interactive books and all of that stuff. That's what's going to be on the devices, and the books that are going to stay paper are going to be." the mass market fiction. And it was completely the opposite. <laughs> it's true the majority of self-published works are digital, and only time will tell if all paperbacks join them. Whether we will see media-enhanced narratives in the near future is another question, and this is actually an area I'm exploring personally. Regardless, with services like Unbound.uk, a crowd-funded platform for authors, writers today have more options than ever. I asked Harry where he felt publishing was today. We are this in-between uh, generation, uh, and and it's it's early days yet. It's uh, well, it's, it's it's early days yet for for computing. <laughs> so 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 you know it's. But I th personally, I think where we are with personal computing at the moment is, if you look if you if you look at a at, a, at another engineering story. So if you look at say steam locomotives. I reckon that we are just about to reach the steam traction engine. So we're in about 1860. <laughs> I reckon that's where we are. I think we're a, a long, long, long way from the 1950s. 
Harry's right. We've got a long, long way to go. This is why self-publishing is such a thrilling frontier. We are at a historic moment where technology has disrupted a 500-year-old model. And writers today can influence how it works now and well into the future. It's a rare moment indeed. So where do writers start? I asked Harry about craft books as a potential leaping point. My feeling is if writers, particularly writers who are starting out, so anyone who is within their first 10 novels, um, if you like set some time aside and every year you read four craft books, that will do you a lot of good. Um, Whereas if you take a particular craft book and a particular technique and you try to apply that to your work, that will do you nothing but harm. Uh, Craft books... What they actually help most writers to do, the writers who use them, is, uh, uh, and I'm including in this stuff about self-editing and stuff about structuring, um, what they actually help you to do is to acquire writing culture. When I wrote my first novel, I had an abysmal understanding of writing culture. I didn't know what the modern reader expected of my work. This was the source of my growing pains, and I sure wished I had a shortcut to topple this hurdle. People say that there are no shortcuts, but actually, if you have time to do all of the reading, <laughs> then, <laughs> then you, it's, I mean, it doesn't sound like a shortcut, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, there are, there are probably 20. The more or, efficient approach, yeah. Yeah, there are probably 20 or 30 books that you could read that would probably be, it would probably give you like 70, 75% of what you could have learned by having a better education and a better, um, I say better, I mean more suitable to becoming a, uh, a writer um, and, a, and a more kind of traditionally literary upbringing. Um, so it, 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 that, stuff, that stuff is certainly useful and valuable. It's as important to read as it is to write. Harry is referring to 20 to 30 works of fiction that will provide the right kind of ink for your quill. Craft books are dandy and can be of great benefit, but obtaining culture is as important, and you're in luck. Harry has compiled a list of 100 must-read books to boost your writing culture. Visit bleedingink.fm to download it. Now, I happen to like craft books. I've read a number of them. The latest is the story grid by Sean Coyne. It just so happened to arrive in my life at the perfect moment and put together all the things I knew into a clear picture. Harry warned me about such an experience. And, and, you know, there's actually something that you said that reveals that very strongly is that you said, you know, you said this is not, it, it's nothing, it's nothing new. It's just that it's stuff that you knew already, but suddenly it was explaining it very clearly. And what that means is that you, you actually, you hit that resource exactly when you needed it. Uh, one of the, one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in education and I've worked, I've, I've taught people all sorts of different things. And one of the things that comes up over and over is that uh, is that people need particular resources when they are ready for them, and and what can happen though, and this is like this is this is the I mean it's not a dire warning, <laughs> but it is it is a warning when you get something exactly when you need it. What you'll want to do is you'll want to kind of repeat the the joy of that sudden revelation that you had, that sudden burst of understanding, uh, you'll want to keep coming back to that. And actually what you need to be doing or need to be expecting to do is building on top of it. I'd never thought of it like that. It's like falling in love. The flood of chemicals in your brain can muddy your decision-making skills 
for better or worse. I'm having a fling with the story grid. I don't want to break up with it, but I do want to use it to grow into the artist I yearn to be. If you are a constant learner, you will find yourself in these situations often. Best to keep a cool head and remember there are other fish in the sea. I then asked Harry about plotting versus pantsing, and his response made me smile. What I talk about in my editing, my getting edited guide more often than anything else is that discussion around writing is full of these false dualisms. Uh, and the the false dualism of plotting and pantsing is one of the ones that is the 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 most pervasive every writer when they actually when you actually get them to talk about it you discover that they actually do something that's somewhere in between and and in fact the way that i normally characterize it is that what most writers do is they they plot but they plot consciously or less consciously it's all a matter of how conscious you are of your plotting process for those who may not know plotting is outlining your story ahead of time and pantsing is just writing without any plot or any outlining in mind i mean it's true there is no one true method this might be great for selling writing courses but the truth is a little different we all know what a story is we've been fed stories since birth it's ingrained in our psyche and turns out most of us think in complete stories. And the reason for that is that, it, is, that you, is that you, just like me, you think in complete stories. Everybody does. We know what stories are because it's what our, it's what our cultural education is. It's what, effectively, it's what makes us human beings in the first place. We know what stories are. And that's what we're actually heading towards. If you like, there's this kind of... A lot of the time, writing a story is like... Uh, um, you know that somewhere in the landscape in front of you, there is a massive target. <laughs> and you're heading towards that massive target. And you have this kind of faith that it's there. And you know, and because you know what kind of story you want, you know what direction you're going to set off in, and you know that you're eventually going to strike that target. And that's because you know what a story is. Uh, you, and you actually know what a whole story is. I'd mentioned the story grid had shifted me into thinking in scenes, each as an atomic chunk of story that's stacked into a larger picture, almost like a fractal where the elements of the story exist in the scene, which exist in a sequence, which then exists in a chapter, and so on. And Harry had this to say about scenes. What you're doing when you break it down into scenes is that you're applying... Um, you're, I mean, I guess what you're, what you're effectively doing there is you're doing what... It's what great dramatists do. It's what great authors do. Uh, it's you are dealing with the fact that if you want your audience to pay attention throughout the story, then you have to do things to keep them interested. And so a lot of the time that does actually mean that you have to say, oh, hold on a moment, we're changing direction, you need to wake up. Uh, and that's what a lot of working from scene to scene is about. That's all it's for. It just so happens Harry is quite active on a site called Quora, which is a question and answer site where people ask questions and experts step up to answer them. And Harry answered one about scenes. And here's his summary on that very topic. But, you know, acts originally existed so that... Uh, people, the audience and the actors had an opportunity to take a break um, 
to either go and get more food, uh, to relieve themselves, uh, that kind of thing. Because the theatre originally was an afternoon. Uh, you know, it was people ask, you know, why are Shakespeare's plays so long? Well, that's the question, really, is why are modern plays so short? Um, you know, theatre was actually a, it was actually a, uh, a social activity, um, and th- the reason why we have scenes is so that there is time for a small number of actors to organise themselves because there are more always more characters than actors. And so it has to be possible for one actor to not be present on stage while he's changing costume because he's going to come on as another character later on. And also there have to be opportunities to literally change the scene. So move furniture around, change a backdrop, that kind of thing. But why do you do that in the theatre anyway? Well, it does actually keep people awake. It keeps them watching. Why is it that the writer's vernacular still contains allusions to the theatre? We do not need to deal with actors changing clothes, shifting sets, or unruly audiences, but we still use words like scenes and offstage. Are these relevant? Uh, and a writer actually has, a, has, has other concerns. A writer has to keep the reader reading. And so the other thing that I would think, I think, in fact, if I was going to say to you, what's the next thing you should be looking for? It's the answer to this question, why? Do you need to keep the reader reading? Uh, and, and that's, I think, a question that uh, very, very few craft books answer. It's a question that, very, that, even, that very few of them even address. It's a question that very few creative writing courses address, although you're more likely to address it in a creative writing course than in a craft book. Uh, and the reason for that is that actually craft books have got to sell as well. And so they don't want to be asking a question that's incredibly difficult to ask and incredibly difficult to answer if you don't have the person in front of you. Every writer must ask themselves, why must the reader keep reading? The answer is what makes them a great writer, and it forces them to find the purpose for each and every word. Why does it matter that a reader should read your book and that they should be awake all the way through, that they don't skip any of it, that they experience all of it and that they get through to the end. What, what are they reading it for? And I'm not, don't, you, don't, don't, don't even try to answer, answer it now, but uh, it's when you have an answer to that question that everything else suddenly slots into, into, into place, that you suddenly say to yourself, oh, well, that's why I'm doing a cliffhanger here. I'm doing a cliffhanger because I literally I need them to turn the page and read on at this point. I don't want them to stop now, you know, uh, and I don't want them to stop now because I want them to associate this idea and and, and the, the idea that's in the next chapter. Uh, or you say, well, why have I come to this? Why have, why am I doing a Rivendell here? Uh, well, actually, it's because I've I've kind of completed this this first idea here, and I want to move on to something a bit different. Uh, and you actually discover that the reasons are there if you know why you're keeping them reading and if you know why you're giving them opportunities to breathe or you're depriving them of opportunities to breathe, why you, know, why you are servicing their desires and why you're punishing them. All of those things end up having reasons for them. Everything needs a reason. Every word must tell, to quote William Strunk. My art teachers, I studied painting in college, branded me with this tenet, and it is a rule I apply everywhere in my life, be it business, creative pursuit, or relationships. 
be present, and perform everything with meaning. I then asked Harry how writers can build sublime elements into their work. He asked me to select a painter so we could contrast their process to that of a writer. I chose Van Gogh. He then asked me to pull up Pavement Cafe at Night. I encourage you to pull up the image while you're listening to this. You can find it on Bleeding Ink's website under this episode. Okay, take, so take Pavement Cafe at Night. Okay, yep. so take Pavement Cafe at night. Uh, what I've is, seen that in person. Yeah, what is it you see in the background down the street? I'd have to look it up, but okay. I, I remember seeing parts of the sky on the moon, I think. Hold yeah, on. well, what down the street, called? You, there is a thing in the street in Pavement Cafe at night. It's the, it's the light post, right? No, the light post is no. outside the... Uh, Let me uh, pull it up. Yeah, put it up on the screen. What? Okay, right down the end of the street. Yeah, I... Uh, down the end of the street besides people, there's the end of the sort of the dipping down of the alley. I don't know what that is in the... Okay. Now, you see, the thing is, you don't know what that is because um, that is a... That silhouette that you can see at the end of the street... That dark see, shape with the two... With the yellow dots in it and stuff. Yeah. That yeah. silhouette is a silhouette that you don't recognize, and this is for cultural reasons... Okay, mm -hmm. but actually, that is a horse-drawn hearse. Oh yeah, look at that! Totally, I see That's it now. What that is that is a horse-drawn hearse, and he's put a horse-drawn hearse because you've got all of this life in front of the light. So that's what the, the lamp mm -hmm. is there for. What you've got in the foreground, you have all the life, and right down at the end of the street, you've got the you've got death. Sure, and that's the obvious. Uh, that's the obvious uh, message is he's just doing a little bit of contrast between life and death, and he's doing it visually. Timeless stories have obvious messages. They are always clear and simple and built of values every human can understand. Life and death, war and peace, chaos and order. Van Gogh's use of color and light are immediately beautiful. It's an obvious delight at first glance. The psyche that produces these great artistic works is complex, however. So complex that the artist is often unaware of the subconscious processes informing their work's greater meaning. And that's okay. As it turns out, Van Gogh's psyche is a little bit flawed when it comes to chairs. So why does he not get the perspective of chairs right? Who knows? Something else is going on there. And I bet, you know, if you said, if, if, he, if you saw him doing the initial sketches and you said, you know, what do you know about this? And he'd say, well, I'm going to put a hearse down the end of the street because I'm doing this cafe. And because, uh, you know, you know that his preoccupation is going to be one of actually, he rather resents these people enjoying themselves. Uh, and so the, the, the death is there uh, almost as a kind of comfort for him. And that's the thing he'd be able to tell you. Whereas if you said to him, yeah, why don't you pay more attention to the legs of your chairs? And he'd be like, what? What's, what's that got to do with anything? And yet he does it all the time. What's going on here that's exactly the same as writing is that as a writer, there are things that you want to communicate and that you have to tell a story in order to do it. And some of those you can articulate before you start. And some of them you can never articulate and you spend your entire artistic career trying to find out what they are. And that's how it should be. Anything that is the creation of art is, is, a, is, is a mixture of those two. Whether a writer will become aware of their art's purpose is questionable. 
What isn't in question is how their purpose matures into a radical force of change, and that is through consistent practice over long periods of time. Harry told me, either a million words or ten books, whichever comes first, and then you've got a great author. Uh, if you look at uh, Terry Pratchett, mm-hmm. a British yeah, writer. I love Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Now, there is a point in his writing where he quite suddenly becomes aware of themes that he's been dealing with already for quite yeah. some time. Uh, and one of those is he has this kind of simmering anger. That's a good way to put it. And yeah. his anger is always, it never goes away. It's always there. But he, there are times when he, there, there is this time when he becomes more aware of it. It's somewhere around small gods. If you know, if you've read all of your Pratchett. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I haven't read all of Pratchett, but I, I'm It's somewhere around gods. small gods. There is this point where suddenly you, oh, he's, he knows it's, he knows what's happening now and he knows what he's, uh, what's, what's bothering him. And it never, but it never stops bothering him, and his anger never goes away. He's all, he's always hangs on to his anger, uh, and he puts his anger into his stories. And I think that because, uh, in a way, Terry Pratchett is he's among the first writers to become a writer the way that people do today, and uh, and so what you've got there is you've got this sensation of something that is the reason why he's writing, that he himself discovers as he's writing and as he's publishing. This might have been my greatest takeaway from our conversation, that I had somehow missed who I was writing for. Why write? Do I have an axe to grind somewhere? What motivates me? It then occurred to me that once I had my four, how would I avoid being preachy and deliver a message in an entertaining way? I asked Harry. Well, okay. Entertainmentism is 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 the means. Entertainment is not the uh, it's not the end. It's the means, and right. it's, I think it's 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 of it's of really of tremendous importance <laughs> for for yeah. writers. Writers should be taught that. You know, I, I think. I mean, I think. I think. In fact, that high school children should be taught that that entertainment is a means. Uh, that's what Dickens is all about. Dickens uses entertainment as a way of communicating his message. And, and so yeah. does Twain. Twain uses entertainment yeah. as a yeah, way of... Twain's master of that. Yeah. And, and so, in a sense, therefore, it's, it's one of those... I mean, I, mean I, can th- in fact, I can think of one of my school teachers who would have said it's the difference between good and bad writing is that, is that the good writers are using entertainment to tell you something and the bad ones are, are simply intended to entertain you. It's the reason why Graham Greene used to he criticised some of his novels as being entertainments, and it was because he literally felt that the the the, the message that he'd put into the work was not important enough. Okay, entertainment is the rainbow-coloured delivery vehicle for revelation. Fun book, good story, amazing characters, life-changing message seems like a solid formula. What other tools might us writers have to exceed readers' expectations? The first narrative device that came to mind was genre. Here's Harry's take. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, genre, ex- genre exists for one reason and one reason alone. It exists so that readers don't have too much choice. Otherwise, otherwise how would they choose what to read next? I mean, that, that's, that, and that's, that's what genre is for. 
I mean, there, there are genres where there are, to a certain extent, strong conventions. Uh, I mean, I mean, for instance, there are things like British police procedurals, which have a very, very strong internal convention. Fantasy is actually the only genre that's uh, that's 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 really uh, a solid genre. It's just that you find it in unexpected places. Uh, you know, science fiction is is commentary on the present uh, through the prism of imagined future, and so, so tech thrillers are fear of the present <laughs> through uh, the prism of an imagined technology. I mean, that's 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 all. Uh, when you talk about um, the experience of of characters and how the reader experiences the characters' experience, you're really you're, then now you're back into the universals of narrative technique. You know, you're 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 now talking about things that are as true uh, for Homer as they are for Dan Brown. Hmm. Genre and character are not wholly related. Genre is simply a way to categorize a book so that readers don't go crazy selecting their next read. Characters, on the other hand, aren't affected by genre, at least internally. A character's journey will remain the same, even if the coat of paint, genre, is a crime thriller or an epic fantasy. Characters are human. Genres are their clothing. Uh, what I think uh, a a story has to contain is it has to contain a coherent emotional experience. It's one of the reasons why it's such a disaster in narrative terms to have too many characters. <laughs> Funny, I discovered that with my first book, Too Many Characters. At first, I was much too biased toward entertaining rather than delivering a coherent emotional experience. Nonetheless, Modern Rituals ended up a fun book and you should go read it. There was this belief, um, and in fact you still find it in some craft books as well, there was this belief that, that in order to maximize your audience, uh, that every member of the audience has to be able to identify with a character, and that people are sufficiently different from one another that not everyone is going to identify with just one main character. So you have to have like an ensemble and, and you have to have like eight characters because if you've got eight characters, then you can hit all of the main types that people will identify with. And as a result of that, you'll maximize your audience. And the problem with that is much more fundamental than you might think. The problem with that is that in reality, readers don't identify with characters. They don't like, they're not interested in or they don't care about a character because the character's a bit like them. They care about the character because you've written a character that they care about. And that character can be profoundly different from them. What I think Harry means here is that everyone can relate to the decisions your character makes. It doesn't matter their ethnic origin, gender, or insert demographic here. It comes down to, can I relate to that decision, and is it interesting? One of the, one of the biggest, the, the highest praise that my writers get from me is when I get annoyed at something that one of their characters has done. It's not, a, it's not the writer's decision, it's the character's decision that annoys me. And, and when that happens, I'm, you know, quite often I'll actually fire off an email straight away. I'll say, you know, uh, I'd say that your, your, your character just did this and it really pissed me off. Well done. <laughs> um, and, the, and if 
because um, particularly when it's a character that I hate, but also because actually characters making bad decisions, particularly making characters making unexpected bad decisions, is something I've always found very difficult to write. Aim to annoy Harry. Drawing out genuine emotion from the reader will build an empathetic bridge to your story. The reader won't want to let go. It's got me thinking, though. Can an action novel do the same as a quote-unquote literary novel of high rhetoric? I asked Harry about literary versus commercial fiction. It's cultural, okay? It's about your culture, okay? So, you know, if you you like to curl up with uh, Umberto Eco... Uh, or now you consider consider him commercial or literary. Well, but, but no, but the point is, I'm, this is what I'm saying. It's it's about yeah. your lit, it's about your personal literary culture. Okay, so okay. you know, for me, something that's a great comfort to read is John Barth. Do you know John Barth? Uh, I haven't read John Barth. No. Um, and the thing is that t- to enjoy John Barth, I know that each time I go back to it, I'm going to see something that I didn't see the last time. I know that it is something that's feeding directly into my personal literary culture and that therefore it's a very easy read for me. Whereas I know that for a lot of people it's an incredibly difficult read and that it comes across as being amazingly literary. So at the root of it, there's actually no distinction between literary and commercial fiction. There's only fiction and the reader's writing culture. There are some cultures that enjoy only stories of romance and action. There are others that require triumphant internal dramas. Best to keep in mind who you're writing for. Harry then contrasts Barth to Agatha Christie. At exactly the same time, though, I can pick up an an Agatha Christie and get the same pleasure out of that. But the reason for that is, uh, is, is different again. It's actually that Agatha Christie is a writer whose narrative technique is as good as it is possible to get. And uh, and that's that's uh, I think possibly a pleasure that may be unique to someone who has studied writing the way that I have as an editor. Culture dictates reading willingness and enjoyment. Find the culture, find the audience, and write for that. Well, as I say, it's not even about. It, it is about culture. It's about your your personal literary. I mean, there are people who read. Uh, there are people who read two uh, Harlequin romances a week, okay? And those people have read more than you or I will read in our lives, okay? And those people, they, they, they in fact have an extremely deep literary culture in a very, very narrow genre. Right. And well, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. it means that for them... Actually, the greatest pleasure is someone who absolutely nails that particular culture, who gets it spot on. Um, you know, because another example I love to give of a really great writer is Barbara Cartland, um, who wrote like 750 romances. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, um, you know, is, is I think I think arguably the biggest selling novelist of all time. Uh, again, it, as, as, as these things always do, it depends on how you measure it. But um, uh, it, it's about what your individual culture is. And that's what makes the difference between whether you find something an easy read or not. And I find Harley Quinn romances quite a difficult read. <laughs> I find romance novels a difficult read too. 
My personal writing culture isn't up to the task, and those that devour two to three books a week humble me. I wish I could do that. I also wish that I wrote romance. I also respect how much romance novelists care about their readers. And here's Harry on that. But one of the the big cultural problems we have with writing, another big cultural problem we have with writing, is that writing is culturally is focused far too much on the writer and not enough on the reader. I worry about writers who don't have um, this view of the reader in the way that... I mean, I work with a writer who... Uh, who does write romance, and the romance writers, the professional, the full-time romance writers, they only think about the reader. My own tastes love a fine blend of a Faulkner-like rhetoric mixed with a well-tuned story. Think Nabokov's Lolita or McCarthy's Blood Meridian. I like difficult pleasures, but I also like simpler pleasures too. I mean, give me Pratchett any day. So how can a writer achieve both, like a Dickens or a Twain? All you're talking about there is one of the one of the the writer's holy grails, uh, um, of, of which the possibly the absolute master is uh, is the writer I already mentioned, Agatha Christie, uh, and that is and that is to be able to to, to pass unnoticed. That's uh, you know that's what that's what a really great writer does. Uh, so so the reader doesn't even when they're reading it they they they're not going to sit there going oh I'm really impressed by this. They're actually, you know, the, the thought in the reader's mind is, it's what's, what's going to happen? <laughs> you know, that, that's what you want to be thinking about. To pass unnoticed. This is every writer's goal. It is the perfect combination of narrative technique and storytelling. It honors the reader and elevates them to places only writing can take them. I want to thank Harry DeWolf for appearing on Bleeding Ink. Find out more about Harry at harrydewolf.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-D-E-W-U-L-F.com. His book, Edit Ready, How to Make Your Book As Good As You Can Before You Send It to an Editor, releases on May 31st, and his editing will change you. I promise. I know. I've hired him. And on to the special announcement. Harry has a brand new 12-week course on how to write your first novel by writing your first novel. It's called Read Worthy Fiction. And guess what, folks? We are giving away 10 free spots to the next 10 Bleeding Ink subscribers. And then we're going to give away 10 more spots in a Bleeding Ink giveaway that ends two weeks from this episode's air date. Head over to bleedingink.fm to enter. Each seat is usually $250, but it's worth so much more than that. How do you put a price on achieving your dreams? It can help you become a professional writer. Find your four and enable you to change the world. Thanks for listening.